Hello and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute, and today we have a real treat. We have Daniel DiMartino with us, and Daniel is a young man who is getting his doctorate in economics from Columbia, a fellow of the Manhattan Institute and Job Creators USA. But most interestingly, he has a program that I think all of us are going to want to hear about. Uh, He is incredibly interesting and articulate, and he is someone who has lived what so many of us hear about and talk about very often, and that is socialism. So, Daniel, thank you for joining us on YCT Matters. We're glad to have you. Thank you so much, Carol, for the opportunity. So talk to us a little bit about your experience living the socialist dream, or should I say nightmare, as a young man in Venezuela. Yes. Um, Well, I came to the United States six years ago um, in 2016 from Venezuela. I was born and raised there. Um, You know, I I was born into a middle-class family in Venezuela, really like a, a, a Something that I think uh, a standard of living that many Americans have today is what we used to have, uh, you know, making maybe three, four thousand dollars a month uh, in the early 2000s. Something that, you know, was very, is even today very common, but was very common in the early 2000s in the United States. And, you know, we had a car, we had a home, we had electricity, we went to the grocery store, I went to school, a normal life like many Americans have. But that changed over my lifetime from that to having to make lines for food, from having to ration the water in our apartment and collect it from the rain, to being afraid to walk in the street because, you you know, people would kill you or kidnap you or rob you everywhere. Uh, You know, Caracas became the city with the highest murder rate on the planet. Wow. Um, And so you were born in what year? 1999, January. Okay. That, so, that, was, that was two months after Hugo Chavez was elected president of Venezuela and a month before he took office. Wow. And so as a little guy, things were okay. May I ask, what did your dad do? Yes. Both my parents owned a gas station. And okay. That, they had that as a business. Okay. Um, as, and as you may know, the Venezuelan regime started nationalizing businesses. One of those sectors that they nationalized was everything related to the oil industry. The oil industry had already been nationalized in the 70s, but only the extraction part. Then even more in the 90s, it was mostly privatized again. And then when Chavez came in, he took back all those gains, and that included gas stations like my parents' gas station. Um, We were still allowed to manage it and earn income from it, but we didn't own it. Wow. So one day they just said, you no longer own the gas station. That's right. Wow. That's uh, un- that's we, we became we became from small business owners to government employees. That's shocking. That just makes me angry to hear. Um, and And so talk a little bit about what it was like, for example, in the stores. What happened with the economy? Yeah. So, well, the, the government took over many industries. Okay. But there were still a lot of private businesses, especially the retail sector was overwhelmingly privately owned, like small stores, grocery stores, even though the government took some grocery stores and they had their own distribution and things mm. like that and gave, you know, free boxes of food to people and, you know, started building public housing for everyone. And yeah. All these yeah. Things. Free quote unquote. Um, yeah. 
Well, but all these things were financed, all these welfare programs, you know, free universities that they created, free hospitals uh, with government money. And that came from somewhere. And that somewhere was, of course, the oil revenue. But that was not enough for all the free things they wanted to give us, which I stopped paying for electricity and, and all utilities. It was free. And the consequence was that they had to print money to, to finance that spending. And so the prices of everything w went up. Right. Uh, and so we had inflation. In the good years, we had 20% inflation. Wow. That kept increasing, increasing to a million percent inflation by, by the time I left. Um, so that your so that the listeners have an under kind of like can wrap their minds around such a high number a rate of inflation right uh, a million percent is approximately doubling prices every single week or, or more I mean it is hard to wrap your mind around but on thank God a much much more minuscule scale but it is a little bit like what we've been seeing here. I mean, when you keep on saying, oh, we'll finance that, we'll finance this, we're going to forgive college loan debt. How do you do it except by printing more money? And when you keep on printing more money, the inevitable result is, in fact, inflation. And inflation hurts people, especially, as you would know better than I, being on track for a Columbia PhD in economics, it hurts the people who can least afford it, correct? That's right. And, you know, what we're experiencing here is, is what you said, a small-scale uh, situation of what Venezuela did. If we were to continue on the path that, that we started during the pandemic with massive spending, then we would surely see extremely high inflation. Like, there's no doubt that, that excessive government deficits lead to, to inflation and, and devaluing our currency. Now, the government in Venezuela started blaming that inflation that they themselves caused on businesses, right? Right. And where else have you heard that greed is the cause <laughs> of inflation? Yes, right. About the greed of the oil I, I've companies. I've been hearing that all my life. Right, the greed of the oil companies. And the gas station owners, you yes. know, when, when the president here in the United States blamed gas station owners, I knew he was totally lying because my parents were gas station owners. I know that's not how it works. No, and those guys go on such small margins. Extremely small margins. Uh, it's a perfectly competitive market. There's zero monopoly power. It's it's totally ignorant of how the gas, gas market works. Yes, well, um, ignorance is the charitable explanation. And so, so, so this was all going on. And then talk a little bit about how everything else got out of control, like with the crime and all the rest. Well, first, because the government blamed greed... Uh, for the inflation that we had, then what was the solution? Price controls. The government oh. has to step in and oh. tell the private businesses how much they can charge for bread, for you know sugar, for meat, and when they impose the price controls because businesses and you know retail stores couldn't profit because their input was more expensive than what they were allowed to sell it, they just stopped selling. And so that's why I had to line up for hours in the grocery stores. That's why the government started taking my fingerprints to ration and know in the grocery store how much of my weekly ration I had consumed. We're talking about high-tech communism here, okay? Like they even put your fingerprint, which somebody had to deal for the fingerprint machines and all that, you know, everything's corruption. Um, and, and that's what they did. My dad has to start rationing water 
in our building, he, he was the president of like our homeowners association. Mm-hmm. And because we had water f- coming in from the street in, inside our tank, the, the government stopped providing us water because they just didn't, you know, the pipelines with or the pipes with water broke down. And because nobody can was paying utilities, there was no money to fix it. Hey, Daniel, you know, it's crazy. You think that communism, socialism, Marxism can't become any more malignant and hideous than it was during the Soviet days. But then you realize now we have technology. So, in fact, it can. And, and what's happening in China, it's even worse. Oh, you know? my gosh. It's right? Not, it's, not, it's not that the Venezuelans don't want to do what happens in China. The difference is that we're Latin Americans, so we can make it work. <laughs> oh, stop. Go ahead. So, <laughs> so tell me more. So I'm, I'm horrified. I'm like, oh, I'm horrified. Tell me more. Okay, so keep going. Then what? So then people started, of course, with the government setting everyone against each other. And where have we seen that playbook? You know, uh, were people just getting desperate or what was happening there? Well, the crime was more of a strategy of the regime to stay in power. Okay. Uh, It's separate from the... So, uh, you know, I think that m- maybe at the beginning they were actually Marxist. I think that later they understood that socialism was bad for the economy and all of this. But that's exactly why they wanted socialism. Because if you have a population that's only thinking about what's next to eat, they're not thinking about how to overthrow you. Yep. And they're not capable of that. No. The crime policy was the same. They stopped persecuting criminals. They made the police basically a criminal force. There were police officers kidnapping people and robbing people in the street. The police officers, right? Well, enemies of the regime. My, my, my aunt was kidnapped by a police officer. No. So what? What? Yeah, did- and you just you pay ransom. You pay ransom. It's a very business-like transaction. It's not like a kidnapping that you would think of in the United States, where kidnappers are just psychopaths. In Venezuela, kidnappers are profit-seeking uh, businesses. And we actually have a whole business model called express kidnapping, where everything's done in 24 hours. You pay, it's a thousand dollars or so, and then, you know, everything's done. Uh, the difference is that a thousand dollars is a lot of money in Venezuela, right? Uh, right. Very, you know, the, the average salary right now per month for a Venezuelan is a little less than $100 a month. Oh, which wow. is what my parents, by the way, my parents went from making three to four thousand a month to making a hundred a month in 2016. In 15 years, I would love for all these people. Yes, right. So, so your aunt was kidnapped. What she was just walking on the street, and the police kidnapped her, or some quote unquote. Well, they crib- weren't dressed. They weren't dressed as police officers. Okay, uh, I'm going to tell you how she found out. Uh, she was kidnapped. You know, her family paid the ransom. This is a little before she married my my uncle, uh, because he he divorced and then he remarried. Long story, um, <laughs> but <laughs> all our families but, have some long yeah, yeah, story. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, you know. And, um, well, she went to the police station to file a police report, which is what you're supposed to do when you are a victim of a crime. Right. And she saw one of her kidnappers in the police station and was one of the police officers. Oh. And then when they asked her who the kidnapper was, she saw him, she blanked, and she just said, oh, no, I didn't recognize anyone. Because she knows that, of course, everyone there is some cahoots with that. Yes. Well, I think probably under the circumstances, that was a wise decision. Yes. Oh, uh, my gosh. And so so was that what most of the crime was? Or were there also just property crimes, killings? 
Oh yeah, my my grandma's house got robbed twice. Thankfully, she wasn't home in both of the, those instances. Uh, you know, robbery became just a daily conversation. Everybody's been robbed in Venezuela. Some people have been robbed multiple times, and we laugh. You know, wow. Uh, you know, I know someone who got robbed twice the same day. Okay, in the street. Jeez. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's we, that's why we're very strong with dark humor in our country. Yeah, right. You have to be right. It's it's like laugh or cry. So. How did you end up being able to get out, Daniel? And and did your parents? Yeah. So, well, I was the first one to get out. My parents got out, but, you know, a year and a half later. Um, well, I knew that I wanted to leave Venezuela, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that there was no future for me, that if I had stayed and graduated college there and, you know, stayed there for the rest of my life, then the consequence would have been just in the best case scenario, being able to feed myself. Yes, that's the best case scenario. I'm dealing with no electricity, you know, no water many times, all those things. And I had come to the United States when I was a kid for tourism. And, you know, I, I thought that this was an, a country that was safe, that if uh, a country that had freedom to speak, freedom to do business, where people made good money, a country that really inspired me because I started reading about economics from Milton Friedman. Yes. So and did then, I. Yeah. I read free to choose. What was the first thing you read? That was, uh, let's see. Um, I think it, it was free to choose. It was free to choose in yeah, college. And then, and then he had the TV series, which I rewatched on YouTube. <laughs> then I read about Ronald Reagan and I'm like, wow, this is inspiring. This is, this is my, set of ideas. This is right. what I believe in. I right. want to be in a country where people support those ideas too. Because in Venezuela, the, the, the tragedy was that at the beginning, most people supported this. Yes. You know, Chavez was elected. That's, that's the danger of Venezuela. Venezuela was not a coup. Venezuela was not a violent revolution. Venezuelans elected Hugo Chavez into power. And Did people continue yes. to support him, Daniel? I mean, were people... Over time, he supported Rodin okay. very much, okay. uh, for sure. Uh, to this day, you know, if you see polling, maybe 10% of Venezuelans still support the regime and 90% reject it. Yes. Well, but still, that means that 10% of the population is willing to, like, die of starvation before they change their mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you, you know, which is what's happening. Yes. It is so sad, right? But, I mean, you did. You had President Obama over there shaking hands with this guy. Crazy. Oh, not just President Obama, Biden too. You know, Biden's now lifting sanctions on Maduro. Did uh, you know he just released his nephews? Yep. His nephews were in jail in New York City yep. for trying to traffic one ton of cocaine into our country. And he exchanged them for five oil executives who were willingly collaborating with Maduro, but happened to have become American citizens later. You know, I, I think they they don't deserve being in jail in Venezuela. And I understand that the United States has a responsibility, but not to exchange our biggest assets in negotiations and really bad people for them. Oh, I really bad, yeah. really bad people. Okay, so you got out and thank God your parents got out as well. And, and, and well, so how I got out was that I, uh, I applied for college here and I was looking for a full ride scholarship. I was extremely blessed by God to, to obtain it and go to Indiana. Uh, so I went to college in Indiana and then, you know, and I think you were the only, the only international student who was selected for this scholarship, just so our listeners understand. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, they, they gave a child one student a year, and I was, you know, very grateful. It's it's so funny because I had an interview for that scholarship, and it was with like the honors college director and one of the professors of economics. And it was from my home, you know, video call, right? I was so scared I would lose power in my home electricity <laughs> because then it would cut off. So I warned them at the beginning, if I cut off, it's not my fault. It's the government. <laughs> um, and we actually, I actually had a discussion with the professor about socialism because he was saying, no, you know, uh, you know, socialism is what they do in the Nordic countries, not in Venezuela. And I totally disagreed with him, you know? And after the interview, I thought, wow, I'm not going to get this because <laughs> right. I just, you know, I'm what a high school senior, but really in 11th grade because we yes. don't have 12th grade in Venezuela. I was a 17 year old talking with like a old economist about this. And, you know, but at the end they, they did like that. So I guess that Kudos. it's good to, you know, you yeah. have to be yourself. You, you have do. to be honest. You do. And so you went to college at Indiana and then now you are getting your PhD at Columbia, but before we finish up, I really want people to hear about this wonderful program you have in place. So could you tell us yes. a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, earlier this year, I founded an organization called the Dissident Project. The Dissident Project is the only speakers bureau in the United States for uh, immigrants from socialist countries. And we travel to speak at high schools all over the United States at no cost to the high school to tell the stories of these people. These people will go on their own, like people like me, including myself, I can be booked through dissidents, but also people like my friend Grace Jo from North Korea, uh, Angus Onteklu from Eritrea, which is also called the North Korea of Africa, right. uh, a few other Venezuelan friends, and we're working on recruiting more people. And so if, if you know, our listeners go to dissidentproject.org, uh, they can find information about us. Uh, the important thing, what we do is not a partisan thing. We're not going there to tell people to vote for a party or the other. I understand that we will always need to, we're going to have alternation in this country, right? There's going right. to be Democrats and Republicans sure. in power over time. We want two parties that both understand the importance of free enterprise. And that's the story of socialism, right? It's a free enterprise matters. You can support a little higher, a little lower taxes, a little more, a little less welfare. But you, you know, we, we can't start supporting policies that take over companies, that put price controls in our corporations, that make it so difficult to start businesses that destroy our economy. You know, um, I, we this, we, we debunk these myths that the Nordic countries are socialist because they are not. No. In you fact, know, they started They started yeah. to recover. In fact, they started to thrive when they started putting a lot of the socialist principles aside. And that's what a lot Indeed. of people don't realize. Yeah. And, and so these are inspiring stories of people who came to America seeking freedom, who will not just tell the students about free enterprise, but really inspire them and make them grateful to be in America which is what we are. That is so important. So it's dissidentproject.org. That's right. And now, uh, Daniel, do you have any sort of online presence? Where can people find you if they want to learn more or follow you in some way? Yeah, of course. Well, I, you know, my Twitter is where I'm most active on social media. It's at Daniel DiMartino. And then I also have a website that I need to update. I haven't updated in like a few months, but uh, where I put like all my writings and I write articles sometimes like on TV as well. And my website is danieldimartino.com. And so, Daniel, just tell us, just for the record, what do you enjoy the most about living in the United States? 
Oh, you know what I enjoy the most is all the people in this country who are so passionate about protecting their freedom. We, I think that we become very pessimistic with the situation that we're in with inflation. We become pessimistic when the people we don't like are in power. But this is still the only country I've ever been. And, you know, after I've left Venezuela, I've been able to go to many countries and to Europe and, and things like that. And this is the only country where such a large share of the population is so invested in protecting their freedoms at no cost. Where we have a second amendment where we, you know, many European countries, they don't really have free speech either. We do. For all our faults, we're still the best place in the world. And that's what I really enjoy about the United States. We are the best place in the world. I think it's so wonderful to get to hear from you because it helps us all to remember and just to give a little kind of kudos to God for getting to be here. You know, it's an important reminder of why all of this is so just vital to keep on keep on fighting for. I mean, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, as the saying goes. And uh, it can't be taken for granted because there are other wonderful people like the Venezuelans, and it can all be gone if we don't. And, uh, and that starts and that starts when we're young, and that's what we want to reach with our stories, the young people of, of this country. Absolutely. And uh, I'm grateful that young people like you are willing to stand up and tell your stories so that our young people can uh, learn something besides what too many of them are, are hearing in school. And uh, there's a little counter-programming out there with the Dissident Project. So, Daniel, thank you for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're grateful you're here. I'm grateful you're an American, and we appreciate your time. Thank you, Carol. And we are grateful to all of you for having joined us. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute, and we look forward to being with you again on another edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place I call home.